Super Talk Mississippi media production. Taylor Swift is coming to New Orleans, and Margaritaville Resort Biloxi and Super Talk are giving away a free pair of tickets. For your chance to win, go register now at Margaritaville Resort Biloxi and get your name in for the final drawing from Margaritaville and Super Talk 103.1. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Good Thursday morning, Mississippi. I hope you are doing well. This is Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting today. Rhino in the booth, keeping me straight. Always great music selections. Do you and Gerard get together and do that together? No. I Is that all you? That's my sole responsibility. Well, not what? sole responsibility, but it is my responsibility. You have that responsibility exclusively in addition to everything else that you do. Correct. Which is a lot. And I, I do tend to take a little bit more pride in the music selection than anything else I do. But <laughs> Well, it's very, very good. Uh, welcome into the Element Well studio. If you're thinking about or planning for retirement, if you're looking for a plan, go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find balance between income growth and guarantees. Rhino, how you doing, man? Oh, not too terribly bad. It... it it feels like it should be later in December than it is because of the way we've got the weekend and New Year's, and it's a little topsy-turvy considering with the weather, because it was just a weekend, last weekend, where it was layers, 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 and stay inside and drip the pipes, and now, besides being just a little drizzly, it's shorts and flip-flops weather again. We were walking in this morning, and Rhino is in shorts, a polo shirt. I'm actually hot because I put on a sweater today, and I think in my brain, I was like, oh, it's been cold, so I'm just going to continue acting like it's cold, and in fact, it has warmed up. I think it's like 65 degrees outside right now. Oh, yeah. We're going to hit the 70s this afternoon in central Mississippi, not to rub it in for north Mississippi. I don't think they're quite getting that hot, but... uh... Yeah, it's definitely above freezing, thank goodness. Well, we got warm enough just in time for it to start raining again, though. Oh, yeah. So that's, you know. This time of year, we're going to talk in a little bit with Wendy Bailey, who's the executive director of the Department of Mental Health. It's appropriate because the malaise that occurs this time of year is real. The darkness, the constant sort of rain and overcast, it just doesn't make you want to get out and do cool things. Not particularly, no. Now, if you're a big fan of cold weather and fires and reading books, great time. Good isolation. Did you guys have a good Christmas? I did. I got to go up to Tupelo and spend some time with the family and some friends for a get-together and got to give the the Wonder Nieces and the Ninja Nephews some gifts. And I got a pretty cool gift from uh, my older brother and my oldest Wonder Niece, uh, a mug with the definition and a picture of the bearded Funkle. Bearded Funkle. Yes, that's the bearded you. fun uncle. That's you, the fun uncle. Um, there's great joy in that. So I've, I've got four nephews. They're all kind of older now. 
But I always got to live out my adolescence, even though I was an adult male, uh, because of them, right? I could do stupid stuff under the guise of being the fun uncle, and that continues until they're like 22 and 23-ish, which is where my oldest nephews are now. And now they're kind of like, hey, can you be a little bit more mature when we're around? (laughs) We get that you've been living vicariously through us, but can you just chill out a little bit? I was joking with my younger brother, who's the dad of my ninja nephew. And I got my ninja nephew uh, a Transformer set with Optimus Prime and Megatron. And I was joking with my younger brother that growing up, we had Transformers. We loved Transformers. You could never find an Optimus Prime or a Megatron. Those were always sold out. And that was long before the days of Amazon where you could just pick what you want. Yeah. So we're both living vicariously through the Ninja Nephew with the Optimus Prime and Megatron toys. Amazon has both made Christmas really easy if you're a parent or a fun uncle, a bearded funkle, as you said. Um, I'd never heard of that before. Is that a thing? Or is that something specifically for you? I want to say it's been on TikTok, but I'm not on TikTok, so I wouldn't really know. You're not a fan of giving the Chinese personal information? Not what, particularly. There are plenty of American companies that have all my information. I don't want to give the Chinese any head start. Well, Amazon has made Christmas easy. Um, it also causes a different kind of anxiety, though, and I, I saw this in my wife this Christmas. She had ordered a specific thing for my daughter. And it was like the hot toy item of the year or whatever. I don't know, some guinea pig, like fake little guinea pig that has little guinea pig babies or something. I I don't understand how these things become popular. They just do. So she had ordered this thing, and it never came. Um, And so she ordered another one. And I'm like, how many times are we going to order this thing? And again, Amazon sends a notice saying that it was being delivered. And again, she didn't get it. But this time she didn't get it because I lifted it off of her front porch and had put it in my car and forgot to tell her that I had put it in my car and candidly didn't know what I had put in the car. Um, And so she's freaking out about it, and it's about to order it for the third time. I was like, I think that's in my car. So got it out of the car. That night, a neighbor from around the corner pulls up in our driveway and gives us the other one that she ordered. So if anyone is looking for a guinea pig in a house that has little guinea pig babies for, say, an eight-year-old girl. Um, I've got an extra one I can sell you. Um, Are you one of these people at Christmas that is sort of into it super early? Are you a skipper of Thanksgiving? Do you go straight Halloween to Christmas? No, I I like to give Turkey Day its due because I do enjoy turkey and dressing and for some people, Thanksgiving is the only time they're going to do turkey and dressing because they get tired of it at Thanksgiving and they don't do it again for Christmas. Whereas my family, we had fried turkey and dressing as long as fried turkeys have been fried turkeys. Yeah, and you're not, but you're not doing it like inside or. No, no, we're we're making sure it's safe outside on a little card table. But actually, I got to do. I was a card in, table. Oh yeah, one of those little <laughs> folding tables kind of deal. That's what we call them, the card table. But uh. I I didn't realize I was going to be in charge of the fried turkey for Thanksgiving until I pulled up to my parents' house and Dad's on the front porch setting up the electric fryer. He goes, oh, good, you're here. You do it. There you go. So I put my luggage down and... But you're doing it with an electric fryer. Oh, yeah. 
you're not doing the 35 gallons of peanut oil or whatever. No, Dad figured out pretty early on that it you can do it that way with the propane burner and the big crawfish pot and everything, but then you got to worry about blocking the wind if there's even a breeze so that you get the temperature to stay regular. And then, then he discovered the, I think it was Butterball brand that first did it, the electric fryer where you just put it in a basket. And like any other fry daddy, you just lower the turkey in and let it cook. And is that the same quality as what you would get in putting it in like a vat of, oh, of yeah. boiling peanut you're, oil? You're still frying it in peanut oil. You're still cooking it at the same temperature. It's just a lot easier to clean up because you don't have to wait for the burner to cool and the pot to cool down the grease. With the electric ones, you pull off this little panel on the back and it comes with a little spigot. You screw the spigot on the back and open it up and there the oil comes. Very, very cool. Oh, yeah. So I had, I for the longest time, and I was an early adopter of frying turkeys, too. I can remember being like 18, 19 years old and working with my dad to fry turkeys. But I had given it up probably five or six years ago because it was just too much of a hassle and moved to smoking turkeys, which I still do every Thanksgiving um, and love to do. But, but maybe I need to check out this electric fryer thing. We they make an XL size that can cook up to a 20-pound bird. There you go. There you go. Oh, yeah. The beauty of smoking turkeys, though, is I don't have to smoke a whole turkey. I can smoke a turkey breast. Right. And I'll do two or three different kinds, right? So if you're like me and you like things on the spicy end of the equation, you can do a Cajun smoked turkey or a Nashville hot smoked turkey, which is excellent, um, without necessarily uh, running afoul of the misses and the children who maybe don't like that on their palate quite as much. So that is the beauty of smoking them, is you can do the smaller smaller birds and, and multiple flavors. I have gotten where on Christmas, though, we don't do turkeys or hams or anything anymore. Uh, we'll do a beef tenderloin, which uh, speaks to my soul <laughs> on a deeper level. Uh, give me red meat uh, way, way, way more than poultry, generally. Um, and then we generally will either do some gumbo or bolognese, which appeals to my Italian side. So... Fun times. I asked the question, though, about Christmas uh, and when you start celebrating, because Christmas used to be my favorite holiday far and away, and I feel like some of the magic is gone. And maybe that's a byproduct of being super old. Uh, (laughs) You know, (laughs) Santa's not real, guys. I'm sorry. Uh, I just said that on live air, didn't I? Can you bleep that out in case there are any children listening? Well, that's the thing. Santa is real. It's just, it's how you look at what Santa is. Nice attempt at a save. Once you're in the know about what Santa actually is, you have to keep the secret. I've just committed an unspeakable sin on live radio. I feel so bad. (laughs) That's why the magic is gone, because people like Russ are the Grinch. We'll be back in just a moment.
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do it. There you go. Welcome back to Middays with Gerard Gibbard, Russell Tino, guest hosting today on this Thursday. It's warming up. It's getting rainy. We were talking about uh, Christmas before the break. We're coming at you live from the Element Well Studio. If you want to talk about retirement planning, go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find balance between income, growth, and guarantees. If you want to be a part of the conversation today, we'd love for you to be a part of the conversation. You can text us at the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. Please come on in and, and visit with us. As I mentioned before, we were talking about Christmas right before the break. And uh, I got a call during break uh, from Santa Claus, and he's a little upset with me. I was trying to rest up after the big holiday and just let me know that there's going to be a lump of coal in my stocking next year and that I should apologize profusely for questioning his existence on live radio air. I've learned my lesson right now. (laughs) Well, I mean, I have seen a few people that got a lump of coal that i don't think they mind getting it because one of those i think it's dukes or somebody like that one of those brands of soap that makes the really big bars of soap yeah they made a special holiday edition with the uh the new charcoal soap it's all the rage yeah and labeled it lump of coal so that charcoal stuff is all the rage i bought some charcoal toothpaste because you know why not it's fat it's a fad let's see what it is it is the most unsettling thing in the world to see on a toothbrush. <laughs> it could be the best thing ever ever for your dental hygiene, and I quit using it after about a week because it's just like, I can't put black goo in my mouth. Yeah, it seems a little weird, but toothpaste does fall in that same basket of you eat with your eyes. Even though you're not supposed to eat toothpaste, it's still going in your mouth, and I... I guess it's something that changes, kind of like the the meaning of Christmas and the feelings you get with Christmas change the older you get. Being younger, you're all about the wacky, zany colors and the brightly colored candy and, ooh, ketchup that's green. That's awesome. Whereas as an adult, I'm going, just just give me the red stuff. That green stuff doesn't look like I want to eat it. Yeah, no, green ketchup is bizarre. I agree with you. So, so here was the premise of my original question in the last segment. I'll, I'll say it, and then we can move on from, from the Christmas conversation. I feel like because we've stretched the Christmas holiday as far out as we have, we've turned it into something that is no longer seasonal and that feels very ordinary. And it's like, well, I've got to be all Christmassy for three months. And before, when it was more compact in terms of the season, that it allowed for a different level of focus on the meaning of the holiday 
it allowed for a different level of focus on coming together with people that you're close to, family and friends. And now it's like, hey, we've got two months of Christmas parties every night with people that we sort of know. <laughs> it's like, can we just can we just get back to something that's a little simpler? That's my personal view, is I think some of that has, has taken some of the joy out of the holiday because we've turned it something that is extraordinary and miraculous into something that feels ordinary in a way. And, you know, of course, people have been talking about commercialization for as long as, as there have been good discussions about Christmas. It is crazy to, like, walk into a Home Depot in October and it oh, just yeah. be filled with Christmas gear. But now you go in any grocery store and they're already winding up for Valentine's Day. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, they clearly have figured out that people like moving from moment to moment in life, right? What's the next big thing? The consequence of that, in my mind, is that we're not actually stopping to appreciate life. It's kind of like, okay, well, we just had Christmas. Let's get ready for Valentine's Day. I feel like we can blame Dick Clark and all the other people that get really excited about New Year's for kind of putting a damper on the Christmas season because... And I'm not old enough to remember when this was the thing, but from what I understand, it wasn't all that long ago in the grand scheme of things where Christmas Day was almost like the beginning of the Christmas season. Yeah, you decorated and you got excited about Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and Santa coming to visit and getting to go to the candlelight service at church and all that, but even the song, 12 Days of Christmas... If I'm not mistaken, the 12 days of Christmas start on, start Christmas, on Day. Christmas Day and don't end until the first week of January. January 6th is technically the end of Christmas. So it's kind of hard to, to follow that idea and get really excited about New Year's, because New Year's is right in the middle of the 12 days of Christmas. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you. I personally like the idea of the 12 days of Christmas. And I'm not saying you'd start literally on the 25th, but, you know, maybe around December 12th. Is a good time to really start watching Christmas movies and listening to Christmas music and getting geared up. It's almost like uh, this will be a poor analogy, but when you have like two months to study for something and you're in college, you don't actually study, right? Because no. you feel like there's just, oh, there's all this time to engage. And then you get to it and you're like, oh, okay. versus like sort of a concentrated, focused effort, you tend to get more accomplished. I feel like that would be true with Christmas as well. That's just my take. Other people on the text line are saying other things, many of them about my toothpaste commentary, which is better than it being about my Santa Claus commentary. So I'll take it. Somebody did say on the text line, uh, actually a few people, that we were making them hungry in the last segment as we talked about our, our holiday food traditions. Rhino, I really would like to just do a cooking show with you. Would be fun. Let's just talk about recipes and things that we eat. You know, clearly we both enjoy food. Let's embrace you it. You don't get this big being bashful. <laughs> we're going to have Malcolm Reed on at noon, which is uh, why I'm mentioning that if we were making you hungry earlier, then Malcolm will make you especially hungry. He's the head of How to Barbecue Right. You look at YouTube. If you want to learn how to smoke meat, he's the guy to go to. Always a bunch of cool recipes. We had him on, what, like a couple months ago when you and I were doing this together? Oh, yeah. And like it was a crazy how the text thread lit up, both with people who are like, this is the greatest thing you guys have ever talked about, can all that political stuff, 
and people who are like, ask Malcolm how you do X. I think that's cool. So I'm looking forward to talking to him. I actually have an 18-pound Packer brisket sitting in my refrigerator right now. I was originally going to smoke it for Christmas. The cold weather came in. Some of my relatives from down on the coast got a little antsy. They were a little scared to be on the road. That was their brisket. It's sitting there. I'm going to do something with it today when I get home. Might get some pointers from Malcolm. He would be the guy to ask. If there's one person that could put the bark on the brisket, it's Malcolm. Are, are you are you a big fan of, of smoking meat? Is that something that you do? I have dabbled in it. I'm nowhere near an expert and not even close to Malcolm Reed's expertise, but I do have a chimney smoker that, I guess you call it a chimney smoker, it's the little bar- barrel with yeah. the, the top on it. So a vertical smoker. Vertical smoker, yeah. And I've I've done chicken on it, I've done pork butt on it, I, I've, I've tinkered with it, but my current culinary tinkering is... The, uh, one of the other gifts I got for Christmas, my dad picked me up an air fryer. It's one of the few things in the kitchen I didn't have. And uh, I am going to be spending the New Year's weekend air frying just about anything I can to figure out how this thing works. Somebody just uh, texted in that we need a cooking show once a week. Enough of the politics. See? People are hungry for other stuff. They well, like- I mean, we are right in the middle of the day, and... It is right in the middle of the day. Politics Pe- can make you... Uh... People are literally hungry. <laughs> They're sitting there. Yeah, that was corny. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just It was there, so I took it. Uh, Jeff in Forest County asked, isn't green ketchup just tomatillo? You wish green yeah, ketchup would, was just tomatillo. I would tomatillo. be okay with tomatillo, but uh, I don't forget. I don't, was it Heinz? Was it Hunt's? It was one of those brands. I think they still make the wacky colored ketchup, but... All they do is make the ketchup and dye it, and it's unappetizing to look at on a plate. Listening to you say correctly, the tomatillo reminds me of Jackson used to have an on the border. And when we first moved to Jackson, my wife and I would go eat it on the border because she's from Texas. It reminded her of Tex Mex, even though it wasn't necessarily the greatest Tex Mex, it reminded her of Tex Mex. And I ordered some tortilla soup. At on the border. This is about a month before it closed shop. Unrelated, I think. And the waitress corrected me multiple times and asked if I wanted tortilla soup. Oh no! And I was like, I'm pretty sure this is a sign that you shouldn't be in business. <laughs> no, I look for the Mexican restaurant where I need Google Translate to read the menu. Yeah, that's better. Give give me some lingua, right? Or oh, yeah. or, or something that is barbacoa. Man, that is my favorite. A good barbacoa taco with some onion and cilantro. Oh, yeah. Lime, some corn tortillas. Now you're cooking, man. You're listening to The Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting. When we come back, we'll start rat- stop rattling off about food and get on to something serious. Be right back. With Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. I mean, you really just are phenomenal at this. Because you every time you play a song, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that song. It makes me happy. Welcome back to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Gerard is out today. Getting some much-needed rest and relaxation. Russell Tino, guest hosting today. 
Hope you're having a great Thursday. It's warmed up a little bit. There's a little rain in the sky, but that's all right. Um, you know, coming off of Christmas, good time to take stock of things before we start the new year and and hit the ground running. So, hope everybody who's listening uh, is well and blessed today. You know, we were talking before the break about all sorts of things, a great potpourri of, of ideas before the break. And we've got some good feedback uh, and a couple of uh, stand-up comedians. Uh, Chris in Oxford says that he likes the charcoal toothpaste, that he uses it on his uh, bottom two teeth. Um, I think the suggestion there is that he doesn't have any other teeth. <laughs> I think. Or maybe he just gets coffee stains on the bottom two. Yeah, I mean, that would be an interesting exercise. That's a very meticulous person that only brushes two teeth with a specific toothpaste and then uses a different toothpaste for all of the other teeth. I think I like the idea that he only has two teeth because, candidly, it sounds almost serial killer stuff that he would have two, two competing toothpaste for a mouthful of teeth. Chris, please don't come after me. You seem like a good guy. Uh, ben and Madison... Uh, says, well, it says Ben from Madison, but then he's giving me food recommendations in Oxpatch. Says, next time either one of you are in or near Oxford, stop by the taco shop. Best authentic Mexican food in the state. You'll thank me later. There's all sorts of cool places to eat across Mississippi. Oh, yeah. I just recently discovered one right down the street from my apartment called Sambo's African Kitchen. And I went in there and got some igusi soup with fufu, and it was delicious. I have seen that place. I would recommend stopping by. They have a great selection. Yeah, so I need to check check it out. I like I like different types of food. I, I like ethnic food very, very, very much. Um, in fact, my favorite place for pho uh, just shut down recently. There was a little old Vietnamese grandmother that had been making the soup for like you know decades. And I think she just got to the point that she couldn't do it anymore, and they shut down. But like that kind of stuff to me, um, sort of experiencing different culture and food is is part of what makes Mississippi unique. It's also you know what they say that uh, the diversity is the spice of life. Oh yeah. So there you go. Well, look, we've got a good program for the rest of the day. Wendy Bailey, the executive director of the Department of Mental Health, will be here at eleven. Senator Daniel Sparks will be here or joining us at 11.37, I should say. Uh, senator Sparks uh, is a freshman senator, but has really made an impact already in the Mississippi Senate, and it's fun to be around. Um, like you and me, Rhino, he can talk a little bit. He can spin a good yarn, as they say, or as someone in the 1940s would have said. <laughs> so we'll enjoy that. And then at noon, we'll have that conversation with Malcolm Reed, that has so many of you texting in on the ceasefire text line that we have now made you hungry and that it is too early to go and get your lunch. You can join us on the ceasefire text line at 601-879-4395, and I hope that you will do that. Have you watched how the college football world has responded to the Mike Leach passing? It is phenomenal. It Like... I am trying to think of another coach that would have been as beloved and the response would have been as strong for, and I'm having a hard time coming up with who that would be. Now, some of it is that he passed away while still a coach. Right. So I get the 
the shock of that because that just doesn't happen. Or I can't think of other examples. I'm sure there are. I can't think of other examples where that has happened. The closest I could imagine would have been Joe Paterno had it not been for his alleged involvement in covering up for Sandusky. I think he had that that feel-good attributed to him by a, a big chunk of college football, but that got soured with the Sandusky situation. Somebody on the text line said Bear Bryant. That makes sense. Um, there I, are many a Bear Bryant Dr. Pepper bottles still on shelves across the country. Sure. I just think that there was something about him and his character that made him such that you couldn't help but to love him. And I think it was just a genuineness about who he was. He was a weird guy, didn't play football, was a lawyer, had this fascination with pirates, said all sorts of kooky things, was great for a soundbite. My gosh, nothing more fun than watching him fight it out in a playful way with journalists, where it was very clear that he was way faster than they were. His brain was working on a level that they couldn't, and it was like the cat toying with the mouse, but doing it in a loving way. Oh, yeah. Um, There's just something about a personality type that doesn't try to be anything other than what they are, that embraces what they are. They're not trying to conform to what everybody else wants. They're not trying to do the coach speak thing. They don't care whether or not you like them, and it makes that person likable. And I think, you know, if Dan Mullen had passed away while he was the coach at Mississippi State, I'm an Ole Miss guy. If Dan Mullen had passed away, I would be sad. It's a human being. He's got a family. Um, I wouldn't have felt the need to do tributes. And I think with Leach, it was kind of like, man, People need to say how great this guy was, how unique this guy was. Um, and you see that across the college football world with all of the various tributes. I mean, almost every team did something unique for Mike Leach. And, I, you know, th- that is a testament to who he was, and it's pretty cool. Um, Ole Miss last night had, had something on their helmets um, that was pretty cool. And then, obviously, the game against Texas Tech where Leach had started um, the very first play, you know, they lined up in the old air raid formation um, and took the delay of game, and then Ole Miss declines that penalty, obviously planned, but a really cool nod. Um, you know, I think, unfortunately, if you're an Ole Miss fan like I am, it got worse after that. Yeah, that was uh, not the outcome many Ole Miss Rebels were expecting. You know, I watched that game, and my nephew, um, who just finished playing at Southern Miss, was texting me last night about the game. Um, And it felt like a a video game sort of mentality. Like he said, it looks looks like we're playing NCAA 12 or something, right? Right. Where you're going for it on fourth and three at your 10-yard line. Or from your 12-yard line, you're going to do a punt fake, both of which were unsuccessful. Um and where that leaves your defense is not in a great spot. And look, I, you know, I, Lane Kiffin knows more about coaching than I will ever know. He's, he's been more successful than I would be as a coach. I do think sometimes it's hard watching that stuff and you're scratching your head going, this is so outside of the norm, and in these particular instances is yielding a really bad result. 
that you got to wonder, like, what's going on? I mean, it's almost like, are recruits watching this? Maybe we're just going to show them that we don't punt as a team. We we have decided we are not going to punt again. Uh, but it was it was a difficult game to watch as as an Ole Miss fan, and I think part of it too is like, okay, well, we had a recruiting class that numerically wasn't great. Uh, we certainly have some holes to fill. Um, you know, what's the future look like, and what's the future look like on the back of a very very hefty contract? Um, you know, it, it, it'll be fun to watch how things unfold over the next couple of years. I actually, though, watching the game last night, had the thought, okay, I'm ready for baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's see what we can do there this year. Hopefully it'll be something worth worth watching. Just skipping the basketball season, huh? Yeah. Let's see. Uh, what? Sorry, I'm looking at the text line for a second from there. From the 601 on the ceasefire text line from Richard, I agree, Bobby Bowden is another name that is pretty much universally beloved across college football. You knew who that was? Oh, it says Richard. I see. I'm getting used to this stuff still. Um, all sorts of tributes pouring into the ceasefire text line on Coach uh, Mike Leach and stories. You know, the the... Funny, there are a ton of funny ones, but one of the funny ones that I recall was his view on weddings and wedding planning and just sort of the banter of she's going to ask you if you want this. She doesn't really care what do you know. <laughs> she doesn't really care if you want it or not. She's going to ask you what your choice is between two things. You're going to say, I like this one, and she's going to say, Well, I don't like that one. And then she's going to ask you, How about these two things? And you're going to say, I don't care. You pick. And it's going to be like, why don't you care? Um, that whole thing is still funny to this day to me. There are a million stories like that about the guy. Um, certainly a legend and a unique character that will be remembered for an incredibly long time. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert coming at you live from the Element Well studio. We're going to be back in just a moment. we got some great guests coming up in the 11 and 12 o'clock hour. Hope that you'll stick around. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. Johnny was a schoolboy when he heard his first Beatles song. Love me do, I think it wasn't from there. It didn't take him long. Welcome back to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting today, Rhino in the booth, keeping me straight. We've been having fun this morning during this little break between the Christmas holiday and the New Year holiday, and then boy howdy do we have to get moving come January, but I hope that you're having a good Thursday morning as we head into lunchtime. We've already been sort of uh, wetting folks' appetite with Conversations about good food around the state. We're going to have another great conversation at noon with Malcolm Reed from How to Barbecue Right. This man is a 
barbecue maestro. Going to talk about what's coming up in the new year for him. Some recipes for you to consider as you jump into the new year. We might even talk about whether or not there's some healthy options when it comes to barbecue. But I'm not promising anything. (laughs) Could happen. Maybe not. Talking about healthy options, there is a new podcast from Super Talk Mississippi called Tired of Weight. Uh, Super Talk Mississippi's very own Rebecca Turner and actress Amia Edwards have teamed up for a new podcast to tackle physical, mental, and spiritual health. You can find the Tired of Weight podcast from Super Talk Mississippi anywhere you get your podcasts and on demand at supertalk.fm. We're coming at you live from the Element Well Studios. And we've been having a good time with the text line. If you want to join the text line, you can do so at 601-879-4395. We were talking before the break about the impact of Mike Leach, and several texts have come in sort of relaying stories. Uh, One of them uh, says, I met Coach Leach once while sitting down for lunch in Jackson. I asked him how his day was going, and he proceeded to give me an amazing 15-minute dissertation on the importance of having a good understanding of the menu before entering a place to eat so that you're able to be prepared for the experience of the place in which you are eating. A truly unique individual. Bunch more folks on the line giving stories. Uh, One fella, 662 number, can't read your text online, but I laughed pretty hard about (laughs) St. Peter. That was was pretty good. Um, Ben and Madison ventured a little bit off off course and asked me a question about my future feeling regarding the legislature restoring the initiative process this session. Um, we'll talk with uh, Daniel Sparks, Senator Daniel Sparks, at 1137. Maybe we can ask him his thoughts on this, even though maybe that's a little outside of his committee's purview, but uh, I'm sure he's got some views on it as well. You know, I think the the balancing act the legislature was trying to pull last year is most people recognize that you really shouldn't make policy in your constitution. A constitution is supposed to be the structure that defines what government can and can't do, kind of what the powers of government are. The legislative branch is the branch that is supposed to make policy. And so one of the problems with the previous sort of system, if you will, is that instead of effectuating statutory changes, it literally inserted into the Mississippi Constitution, the structural foundational document, individual pieces of policy, and in doing so tied the hands of legislators, future policymakers. If, as an example, a ballot measure passes that has all of these different requirements and the state can't fund it, that's a problem if it's stuck in your Constitution. Or if it turns out that what got stuck in the Constitution is actually unworkable, that we hadn't thought through of all the unintended consequences, when that happens in a statutory sense, it's pretty easy to fix. It happens all the time, where people think legislation is going to do one thing, and then once it goes into effect, it turns out it does something else, and you got to make adjustments. Well, the old system really didn't allow for that. So to the extent it's going to be replaced, to me... It's got to be statutory. It's got to be something where if the people of Mississippi get to put an initiative on the ballot, it effectively creates a new law, not a new constitutional provision. And I think it's got to be written in a way that would allow for amendment, right? So, And maybe it's some supermajority. Maybe it says that the legislature can only amend with three-fifths of the vote, something like that. That makes it harder to amend the people's vote, but certainly not impossible to amend the people's vote. 
Um, the other thing that I think that you've got to factor into this if you're going to do a replacement initiative process is how do you do it in a way that you're not allowing for laws to be passed that are contingent upon federal action? And it's, you know, in the current day and age, so much of what the states are able to do is contingent upon the federal government doing something first. And the danger of passing a law that's contingent on the federal government doing something first is that the federal government can change its mind. It can change what it does and obligate the state in new ways. And so I think there there have to be some limitation that a statute passed by an initiative process couldn't be contingent upon federal funding. It couldn't be contingent in a situation that would obligate the state if the federal government were to change its mind. Ben, I don't know if that answers your question, but those are my thoughts at least on what the what a replacement could look like. When we come back from the break at the 11 o'clock hour, we're going to talk to Wendy Bailey, Executive Director of the Department of Mental Health. Great conversations to be had moving forward. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert coming at you live from the Element Well Studio. Russ Latino talking fast at the very end, trying to get the points in. We'll be right back. The show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Russell Tino, guest hosting for you today on this Thursday. Hope you're having a blessed day. We are joined in studio by Wendy Bailey, who is the executive director of the Mississippi Department of Mental Health. Wendy came in, and I had to get serious all of a sudden. So, (laughs) Wendy, good to be with you. Glad you're in today. Thank you for having me. We were talking um, before we came on air. You've been with the Department of Mental Health now almost 18 years, right? That's, That's correct, yes. So you've seen all sorts of evolutions in the department. Some very drastic evolutions, yes. And then in the last two years have obviously taken on this leadership role. So come with a lot of institutional knowledge coming into the role about things probably that you thought were done well and things that you probably thought, hey, we can do better. Mm-hmm. Yes. So. The Department of Mental Health has been one of those departments that's been involved in some federal litigation. That's not a surprise to anybody. That's mm-hmm. um, about sort of what it looks like to supply good mental health. And I wonder, just kind of out of the gate, if you could give some context, without getting into the litigation itself, but just the context of, like, why is that so important? Why is the questions that are being raised in the litigation so important? And kind of how has the Department of Mental Health responded to it? Okay. Well, the litigation was around Olmstead, which is individuals being served in the least restrictive environment. So having the services that they need in the community versus having to be institutionalized. So if you look over the last, say, 10, 11 years with the department, um, we had, back in 2011, 510 acute psychiatric inpatient beds across the state. And right now we have 280. So you can see how that has drastically decreased, those inpatient beds for commitment. 
And then we had uh, crisis stabilization units, which are in the community, but we had about 124 beds, and you had to be committed to be able to be in one of those beds. You had to be involuntary committed. So one thing that we've done is we've decreased the commitment beds, the acute psych beds, and we've increased crisis stabilization beds in the community and made those available um, for voluntary admissions. So things like that are what have been done. Um, you've seen a, a decrease in the institutional budget. You've seen a decrease in the number of beds. You've seen a decrease in the number of staff. And you've seen an increase in these community-based services, which is exactly what you know the litigation is about, um, having the services that you need when you need them available in your community and surrounding you. And those are services such as um, crisis services like the crisis stabilization units, but things like supported employment and supported housing, um, having peer support specialists available, which are phenomenal and something I think Mississippi is very strong in, and then also having intensive services available, things like programs of assertive community treatment, or we call PAC teams, I-Corp teams, which are intensive community outreach and recovery teams. These are services that are a very intense level of service that's provided to an individual, and it wraps the services around them to keep them in the community to avoid that institutionalization, which is what you want. You want a continuum of care, and you want those beds there when they're needed, but if an individual can be served in the community, that is what you want. And my appreciation had always sort of been that a long time ago, mental health, really, the state's response to it, and I don't just mean Mississippi, across the country, was kind of like, okay, if somebody's struggling with mental health, institutionalization is the answer. And it seems like the rest of the country, or large portions of the country, moved away from that quicker than, than what Mississippi did. Is that a fair sort of summation? There were states that did, you know, that had expanded crisis services, of course. I think now, um, especially when you look at the southeastern states, we have more crisis stabilization beds in Mississippi than a lot of other states do. Um, also, 988 rolled out this year, which was uh, a three-number um, for the National the national Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is now called the Behavioral Health Crisis Line. And this 988 is surrounding crisis services. So it talks about how you need Need someone to talk to, someone to respond, and somewhere to go. If you have a good, strong crisis system, you have all three of those things. Well, I think in Mississippi, as states, we were having national calls looking at how this is going to roll out nationally. Mississippi was in a better position than a lot of states because we did have those three legs of the stool. Now, do we need to improve upon them and expand them? Absolutely. But we had you know, a good, strong crisis line and answer rate. We had crisis stabilization units, and we had mobile crisis response teams. And you have some te um, some states that are just now starting some of this up are working to expand it. So I think Mississippi's in a much better place in the last several years than in the past. So essentially, you guys have worked to expand very quickly. Very quickly. <laughs> yes, very quickly. So, so talk to me a little bit more about 988. I, kn I know you mentioned that as an element of a larger network of support, if you will. Um, but that really is important, not just in Mississippi, across the country right now, because we have experienced this uptick and people who are suffering from 
significant mental health crises, right? That is exactly right. Especially since the COVID pandemic, you have seen an increase in the number of people calling. Um, so 988, um, ultimately in the long run, is supposed to be the 911 for behavioral health. So if you're having a substance use or mental health crisis, you can call 988. There are, this is a national program. Um, it was Congress introduced legislation in October of 2020, and then 988 rolled out in July 16th of, of 2022. So what happens is when you call 988, it goes to a national call center. And then it rolls, based on area code, it rolls to one of the Mississippi call centers. So we have two in Mississippi, and they are trained crisis counselors. So ultimately, you would you would reach in a crisis counselor who can be able to talk you through the crisis situation that you're ha- that you are having. About 80% of the time, calls can be resolved over the phone. But about 20% of the time, they need to go a step further. And that's where our 988 call centers can dispatch out mobile crisis response teams to be able to go to someone in the community. Um, the, the, we are seeing an increase in the number of calls in our state to 988. We've seen an increase in the lifeline calls over the last several years. Um, but I think one of the things that Mississippi should be proud of with that is that we have one of the top 10 highest in-state answer rates in the nation, which means if you call 988 in Mississippi, you are going to get a Mississippi-trained crisis counselor. It's not going to roll to another state. So we're in the top 10 of that in the nation. So on that, I mean, I think a lot of people used to think of that hotline, and obviously it's a new number, but it's sort of the suicide prevention hotline, right? What is sort of the breakdown of the types of calls that you're getting? Is Is it all people... Who are having suicidal ideations, or are there other things that generate those calls? There are other things that generate those calls. Um, of course, it is. It has always, in the past, been referred to as the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. They're moving away from that name to be Behavioral Health Crisis Line. Um, but you have people who are maybe in a, a suicidal uh, crisis and needs help, but you also have people who are looking for help or need connection to services, or they're calling on behalf of a loved one who may they may be worried. Are having thoughts of suicide and they don't know how to react or respond. So it's a, it's a multitude of, of different types of calls. I would imagine, and maybe you can speak to some of the safeguards against this, that if you've got somebody who's in a mental crisis or having a, me- a behavioral crisis um, and they're already in a, a rut, if you will, that there is some fear in calling for help because there is at least a thought that calling could compound the problem, right? Do I end up on some list? Do I end up in a situation where I am involuntarily committed? Um, and so that there's that is a sort of natural impediment. How do you guys approach that when it comes to trying to make people feel more comfortable with the idea that it's okay to seek help? I think one of the main things that we focused on in the last several years have been certified peer support specialist. So if you are in a a situation, whatever it may be, you want to talk to someone who's been in a similar situation, someone you can relate to. And that's where certified peer support specialists come in. Those are individuals who are in our state who've been through the system, 
who have had a mental health issue or a substance use issue or their loved one has, they go through a 40-hour training with our department and they're certified and they work to help others. They are peer support specialists. Hearing those stories, having someone to talk to that's been there, done that, um, is very, very important. I think having more people come out and talk about their own mental health and their own recovery has opened doors for others to realize, okay, it's safe for me. I can seek help. To me, that's the key is those true, real Mississippi stories and being able to relate to someone. And the idea that if you need help, you should seek help. Exactly right. right. That, that there isn't shame in it. There's not a stigma to it. We all have times in life where things are hard, exactly. and it's okay to ask for help in those situations. Wendy, can you stick around for another segment? Absolutely. We're talking to Wendy Bailey, the Executive Director of the Department of Mental Health. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert from the Element Well Studio, Russ Latino guest hosting. We're going to come back and talk to Wendy a little bit more about what's going on with the Department of Mental Health and things that you need to know as citizens. Be back in just a moment. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. waiting for that moment of elevation there there it is there it is i was waiting welcome back to middays with gerard gibbert russell tino guest hosting today from the element well studio we're talking to wendy bailey executive director of the department of mental health um i want to jump back into to the conversation that we were having before the break we talked about how services that had been expanded and some of the changes sort of away from institutionalization being the first step to thinking more on a community basis, creating a network of support. You guys have been doing that for a few years now and aggressively have moved towards that. What are you seeing in terms of results? Are you seeing more positive results out of that switch? Absolutely. The outcomes are there and you can clearly see the results. So. I'll give you an example. There are intensive services that can help an individual, as I mentioned, stay out of the hospital. So PACT, Programs of Assertive Community Treatment and I-Court that I mentioned, are two of those. Um, and there's also ICSS, Intensive Community Support Services. So our goal has been to have at least one of those in all 82 counties of Mississippi, and we've reached that goal. So in for PACT, for example, the most intense level of service, you have to have multiple hospitalizations to qualify for that service. So this is an individual who's been in and out of state hospitals. So this past fiscal year, there were 760 people who received PAC services in our state. 760 people who've had multiple hospitalizations through the years. So PACT, out of those 760 that were served, 31 
had to go back to the hospital. That's a 4% readmission rate. I mean, that's a phenomenal outcome for people who have had to need that high level of service. Um, Intensive community outreach and recovery teams, there was right at about five to 600 served with those teams, and they had a 6% readmission rate. So, I mean, you can see that the intense service, when it's there, it's available, it's wrapped around the person, works, and does prevent that institutionalization in most cases. Yeah, that's incredible because, I mean, I think about it, you and I talked uh, during the break. I've worked a lot in criminal justice reform, and one of the chief metrics in thinking about our program successful in the context of criminal justice reform is what does that recidivism rate look like, mm-hmm. right? How likely is this person to reoffend? Because we know that 95% of people who are sitting in prison will one day be out of prison, right? And so sort of the efficacy of the programs that are developed really center around can they get that job? Can they get back on track? How likely are they to reoffend? And the analog here seems to be, hey, look, we have 760 people who have been in and out, mm-hmm. who have been sort of that repeat offender in the context of criminal law. And the reality is that the programs that we've built have made it such that the recidivism, so to speak, is really low. That's exactly right. The crisis stabilization units are the same way. They served a little over 3,100 people last year, 91% of the people that were served in a crisis stabilization bed did not have to go on to a state hospital. 91% of them were able to be re- go back into their communities, go back to their jobs, their families, their loved ones. They did not have to go on to a state hospital. So I, I, I arguably made a poor analogy, but hopefully it made sense. There is a natural intersection, though, between criminal justice and mental health. Talk to me a little bit about things that the state has been doing to try to recognize that there are people who suffer from mental health problems that maybe don't belong in prison, but there's a more effective way of dealing with those problems. So I think it's a it's a multi-pronged approach. I mean, one one thing is is you do want to have the services available when someone needs them. Um, I think training of law enforcement is very important. Mental health first aid for public safety and crisis intervention team training. So when law enforcement law enforcement or, um, law enforcement officers encounter that individual, that they know how to respond, that they know how to de-escalate, and they know how to react. I think that that training is so very important. That tool and that toolbox of law enforcement because a lot of times that's that first encounter. I also think then that you need to have things like mental health courts where you have options other than having to go to jail, um, that you have things like mental health courts that individuals can go through. Um, Drug courts have been very successful in our state and we're moving more into mental health courts now. Um, I think that's very key and that's important. Having options for somewhere to go. A lot of times an individual gets placed in jail If you have diversion centers, which we have one small one in North Mississippi, and we're trying to start a couple on the coast, um, diversion centers are a place that somebody can, law enforcement or someone can can take an individual to, and they can receive services, that intervention through peer support. Um, Having those options available and and, and preventing that individual from ever going to jail is important. But then also if there have been, um, you know, an individual who is an offender, that you do have options like mental health courts, too. And how expensive is that program now? I know drug courts have, have gotten more adopted and accepted. How expensive are the mental health courts at this point? So there was legislation passed in 2022, this this past session, um, for the establishment of some additional mental health courts. There's always been one in Hattiesburg, or the last several years there have been. Um, and, and this is going to add several more. I think it's about seven or eight that's going to be added. The Office of Administrative Courts is we're kind of partnering 
partnering with them and working with the community mental health centers as well. They'll be key in that. Well, and you mentioned uh, as you were going through sort of the description of how law enforcement should approach people who may be suffering from mental health crisis that you guys have developed essentially a mental health first aid. Is that just for law enforcement or is that something that's available to, to other people? Businesses, organizations? So it's actually a national evidence-based training. It's from the National Council. It's mental health first aid. There's a mental health first aid for adults, a mental health first aid for children, and a mental health first aid for public safety. So there's different options. And we have a federal grant to provide that free of charge right now. And then we received ARPA funds from the legislature this year for the public safety aspect of it. So our goal is teachers, um, parents, churches, any type of group, any type of setting that's interested in learning more about signs, symptoms, how to connect people to treatment, how to talk to somebody who has a mental health issue, um, just learning more about being a good community partner uh, to go through this training. It's a it's an eight-hour training, and it can be one full day or it can be two days, four hours each, and then you're certified in mental health first aid. Is You mentioned for teachers. Um, I've read, and I know you've forgotten more than I've ever read or known on this, but I've read that the crisis in, around mental health has increased dramatically in young people. Um, do you have a sense, and, and this may be uh, an unfair off-the-cuff off question, what's causing that? Like what? I, I do think that some of it is is building up coping skills with our children and our youth it's for to teach them at a young age, you know, how to cope with their feelings and their emotions and what to do. I think having more awareness and openness about talking about it. Um, we have a suicide prevention campaign that's called Shatter the Silence, Suicide the Secret You Shouldn't Keep. Very straightforward. If you have somebody at your school that tells you they're having thoughts of suicide, that is not a secret you can keep. You have to tell someone. I think opening those doors like you were talking about earlier with people feeling comfortable to talk about it. Um, but I think also over the last couple of years, I mean, there's been studies that show just the results of the pandemic and job loss and, and sickness and illness in families. I mean, that's created a lot of stress. Um, and a lot of issues um, with children and families in general. And I think that's where we do need to focus in on recognizing those symptoms earlier. Early intervention and prevention is so key, um, especially with children and youth. So one of the questions that came in on the, the C Spire text line, um, and it kind of speaks to something we were talking about earlier, is the fear of raising your hand, right? Yeah. The fear of saying, I need help. We live in a state where Second Amendment rights are important to people. Um, where a lot of folks have grown up in a culture where owning guns is just part of what you do. Um, and so the, the texter basically asked the question, how do we balance an individual's Second Amendment's right and their potential need for mental health interventions? Um, and I'm curious, I'm sure you've heard this question before. So I think one key of that is to avoid that institutionalization, avoiding that commitment, having those services available so that individual can get served and receive mental health services in their community, as opposed to having to go to that higher level of care where that is, that's where it kind of becomes involved. Um, I think that's key, is, is, is being able to avoid that institutionalization and having those services available when someone needs it. Because there is that fear for multiple different reasons and levels. There is that fear of raising your hand and saying, I need help. You know, one thing that we talk about a lot is, um, you know, if you have a if you have a loved one that breaks their arm or has to have surgery, you go visit them in the hospital, you bake them a casserole, you know, you 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 be that loved one that's surrounding them to help them. But you don't know how to do that necessarily when it's a mental health crisis. 
where we have to get to a place in society, and especially in our state, that a mental health crisis and a physical health crisis is the same thing. That mental health and physical health go hand in hand, and they're looked at equally. Yeah, and just destroying the stigmas. And there's so right. there's so many misperceptions. Uh, so I'm I'm glad that you guys are out working to address those things. I've got just a few seconds. Um, you're also dealing with a labor shortage. Absolutely. Yes. Anybody who wants to work in the mental health field, please give us a call. We have community mental health centers across the state that have job openings, and we absolutely have them at the Department of Mental Health. It is definitely a struggle. Wendy, thank you so much for coming in. Good information, hopefully helpful to our listeners. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting. We'll be back in a moment with Senator Daniel Sparks. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Guest host Russell Tino today. Hope you're having a great Thursday. We are joined not in studio via the Zoom thing by Senator Daniel Sparks. Senator, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Russ. It's good to be with you. Um, I'm actually being able to join you out here in the sticks of uh, Belmont, Mississippi, uh, thanks to my good power cooperative internet that I have. So there's a plug of the day. <laughs> well, it's good to be with you. I got to tell you that at noon, uh, Malcolm Reed is going to be on talking about barbecue, and uh, so I need some high energy from you. You, you know, you, you got a tough act to proceed. <laughs> I got you. Well, that sounds good. First of all, let me uh, let me say congratulations, sir, on your new venture, and uh, best uh, best wishes to you. Appreciate the work you have done and continue to do. Well, thank you very much, sir. Uh, I am excited about it. It obviously is. Uh, I've got a serial entrepreneurial heart, Daniel, and so I kind of jump from vision to vision sometimes. But this is something that I think is desperately needed. Excited to get uh, a new nonprofit media entity rolling. Let me talk to you about what you've got going on. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the program that while you are a, a quote unquote freshman senator, uh, or at least in your freshman term, uh, that you've already had outsized impact, and a lot of that has been work that I've been able to see firsthand uh, working in corrections. Talk to me a little bit about the things that over the last couple of years you look at and say, man, it's pretty cool I was a part of that. Well, I appreciate that very much. So the um, the work, obviously, in corrections had to do with the appointments. As you know, freshmen generally don't chair committees, and uh, your vice chairmanship is going to be the most involved work. And uh, I was assigned to be vice chair of corrections with Chairman Juan Barnett, and we had some pretty serious issues in MDLC at the time. And they were not fresh issues. They were issues that had lingered uh, for legislative 
uh, and agency run issues over the years. And, and, you know, we were able to work through some legislation. Uh, we were able to experience getting the work through it a second time uh, in the next year. And so there's, um, there was, there was much that I think is beneficial there to give people the option uh, to choose to do better. Cause that's ultimately what we want is we want people uh, to choose to do better. Uh, there are punishments when you violate law, uh, we want uh, to prosecute. We want to incarcerate. We want to do the things that are necessary to have a safe and just society. But we also need to understand the corrections part of that agency and that we are uh, preparing people to hopefully do better in the future. Yeah, no, I mean, I, look, I, I will tell you that um, I think the approach has been a smart approach, right? There, There's a mentality sometimes, I think, that says, the only way to deal with crime is by locking people up and throwing away the key. And then on the flip side, there's a mentality that says, let everybody out of prison. We don't need to be putting people in front of judges and juries. And I think the middle ground is realizing that if we focus on the people that present the biggest threats, and not only can we do what's right by taxpayers, but ultimately we're going to have safer streets and communities. And I think you guys have done a pretty good job of trying to balance those interests. I mean, there is a, a budgetary interest when we talk about criminal justice reform. It's one of the biggest items that the state pays for and that taxpayers pay for. There's obviously also a very important safety interest in making sure that when our kids are out playing in the streets or they want to go ride their bike, that we don't have to worry about what's going on in our communities or if our wife goes to fill up at the gas station, we don't have to worry about that. Um, and I think you guys have, have relied on evidence to make good policy decisions. Well, I appreciate that. And, and, you know, it is a work in progress. And of course, I look at it also from the agency standpoint of the fact that it's pushing close to $400 million uh, annually in our budget. I also look at the, the lawsuits that potentially are out there, other issues we just had our mental health folks on. There are things that the state does that, that they're, everybody talks about being good stewards of the taxpayers' money. Uh, operating efficiently is one part of that, but also operating in a manner where you don't end up on the wrong end of, uh, you know, a federal uh, consent decree is, is another thing to do. And, you know, one of the things I do pretty regularly and I would encourage uh, folks to do when they have questions is you, you look at the, you look at the basis of the contracts that are behind some of the services that we're providing. And just like negotiations in business, you want the best product for the money you're spending. That's something that I find as a legislator personally, and as an attorney, I guess maybe makes me want to look at it some too. Uh, I just want us to to make better deals. I want us to uh, enter better agreements. I want us to hold people accountable if they're not holding up their end of the bargain when they have negotiated with the state. And so uh, that's something I'm going to continue to look at uh, with the Department of Corrections as well as any other department uh, because, you know, our, our budgets get away from us sometimes because of of the contracts we enter into and the services are provided by third parties. I'm all for third-party contracts, but I want accountability and efficiency there as well. Well, you were being so likable, and then you fooled around and admitted that you were a lawyer. <laughs> well, unfortunately, you have to own your mistakes, I think. Well, and, and, and I joke, honestly you're in a unique position on some of the things that you're working on because of the fact that you're a lawyer. 
you know, oftentimes legislators get in positions um, and have to rely on intuition about what right what the right policy direction is. I think you're in a unique position, particularly dealing with this subset of issues, where you see it on a daily basis, and so you're not guessing at the impact of the decisions that are getting made, or you're not guessing at the impact of status quo. You're actually experiencing that, and that allows you to bring a knowledge to the table uh, that sometimes is lacking um, in, in making those policy decisions. So I joke about you being a lawyer, uh, but in this context, it's, it's a good thing that you are uh, because you know about what you speak and you're living it. Um, you know, you and I worked on a bill around parole reform uh, a couple of years ago now, and obviously the parole board, you know, sometimes comes into moments of controversy. It, as it turns out, most people don't know the parole board exists until maybe they make a bad decision, um, and then suddenly it draws scrutiny. Um, our parole board has been in a, a state of transition um, under prior leadership to to now. Um, uh, you know, sort of a new new sheriff in town, if you will. What are you seeing in terms of the implementation of that parole law? Are you heartened by the progress that's being made? Are there things that you think that need to be cleaned up or done differently? Well, it's it's always easy to armchair quarterback somebody. I, I don't serve on the parole board and have not served on the parole board, but I know the intent of the legislation, and I would say that the intent of legislation has been frustrated in the last year. And yes, there has been turnover and there has been uh, maybe a, a learning curve, but we need to look at the law that's on the books. And, you know, presumptive parole was discussed at a uh, hearing that we had just a few weeks ago. There was something that was to put in place, I believe, with House Bill 585 in 2014 uh, that, that we just haven't done. And once again, it boils down to agencies following through and doing the things that were intended. The legislature certainly makes mistakes from time to time, but so often, we put a bill together and then we turn it over to an agency and then we expect them to implement it. So I said repeatedly when we discussed this bill and talking with my DAs and my sheriffs that parole eligibility does not equal release. And I still say that today, but we have a um, an interesting trend, particularly nonviolent offenders, that our numbers are what our numbers are. They went from uh, maybe the high 15,000s, low 16,000s to the 19,000s in a calendar year. Now, if we're incarcerating and prosecuting and that's just the nature of safety, then the state of Mississippi will accept that role. But, you know, the peer report comes out every year and tells us supposedly what it costs to house an inmate. That number's $59 this year. That report came out just the other day. Now, I'm going to dig into those numbers. I want to see how we're coming up with that. Are we administrative heavy? Is, is this based on aged facilities? But at the end of the day, we have to run an efficient system because that $400 million number is going to turn into a half a billion. It's just going to keep growing. And sometimes the growth of government um, which frustrates conservatives is in things like this that we've just got to we've got to watch we've got to watch our contracts we've got to watch our hiring we've got to watch our facilities our maintenance and we just have to be honest sometimes we get it wrong and uh, unfortunately in the last several years we've, we've struggled in different areas and corrections I appreciate the work uh, Commissioner Kane is doing but it still is a growing financial number that concerns me. Yeah, so I mean, there, there's a lot to unpack there. I think one of the key takeaways for me is when we're talking about parole, what you just said is so important, that eligibility is not the same thing as automatic release. 
but they serve a really important gatekeeping function because having that power doesn't automatically mean that you should deny it to everybody either, right? That the vetting function is making sure that the street stays safe by making sure that people who pose a continuing threat remain behind bars and that people that don't pose a continuing threat that have been rehabilitated get that second chance and that by doing that we can focus resources in the right place. Can you stick around for another segment? Yes, be glad to. Great. We are talking with State Senator Daniel Sparks. You're listening to the Midday with Gerard Gibbert program. Russ Latino guest hosting from the Element Well Studio. We will be back in just a moment. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, Mississippi. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting today. Hope you're having a great Thursday from the Element Well Studio. For those who have been texting in today, good stuff coming from all of y'all. You can join the conversation on the C Spire text line, 601-879-4395. We're talking with State Senator Daniel Sparks. Senator Sparks, welcome back. We were talking before the break a little bit about some of the concerns around uh, where MDOC is positioned, where the parole board is positioned. And really a lot of that goes back to the fact that, to your point, We've gone from you know around 16,000 inmates where we're now pushing 20,000 again. Um, and if the trend continues, that number will continue to grow. That makes us the state with the highest incarceration rate in the entire country. And that's an expensive proposition, isn't it? It is, and every year the um, you know the appropriations folks have to get together and and uh, decide on budgets. Uh, I serve on finance; we deal more on the uh, tax side, but um, but that's that's really the concern. And you know, we look at what we have going on in the state right now with uh, the ARPA funding that we received and the monies that we've tried to put in rural water and to put into our cities and counties uh, for for water and sewer and and storm water. Uh, that's $750 million. We would like to be able to do some more of that. We would like to be able to focus on these things and other areas of government, if they continue to grow, take away from those opportunities uh, that you that you're looking forward to dealing with legit with legitimate infrastructure, uh, with roads and bridges. Uh, we put a hundred million dollars in the ERBR last year in the Mercy Road and Bridge Fund. Um, that helps our rural counties. I serve in a rural area, and as you mentioned, I'm a freshman and uh, finishing up uh, year three, about to start year four. And you feel like you learn along the way, uh, as with anything else, to try to help serve your constituency. And we want to be good stewards of, of the funds that are there. And, and we have duties. We have uh, state obligations. We look at education. We look at what we were able to do for our teachers. And all of those things hinge on each part of government 
functioning efficiently. And that's the challenge, I think, for all of us is that we want to be able to operate as efficiently as we possibly can and as effectively as we possibly can. And where we see inefficiencies, we need to speak up. And, you know, there are groups out there that speak up, obviously, that look at these things. Um, as legislators, we need to be aware of that. But the biggest thing we want to try to do is is have a state where businesses are drawn to us because of our tax nature, our regulatory nature, all of those different things. But we have to have strong schools. We have to have safe communities. Those are the things that every community, every county, and every state desires. And that's that's our goal in the state of Mississippi. So we are obviously heading into an election year. Next year is an election year. Mississippi is one of a few states that has odd-year elections. Oftentimes, that means that the legislature um, doesn't push as much. Uh, At least that's a historical trend where you will hear people in back corners of the Capitol say, well, you know it's an election year, right? Um, What's your sense uh, of what's going to happen in the coming year? Do you see a, a letting off of the gas, or do you see some big issues in front of you? Well, I, I will say this in general. The the good folks in Senate District 5 sent me down there. Uh, it's a four-year term. They didn't send me to work for three years and freeze the ball the fourth year. So I, I want to make sure that we address the things that need to be addressed. Uh, so often we get bogged down in the weeds of, of some issues, and, and we fail to focus on some of the main things. Daniel just became Megatron on the air. Let's see. Go ahead again. (laughs) Well, I think think what the good senator is trying to say is that he's not going to let off. (laughs) uh, Daniel, I'm sorry. We're going to have to revisit. Uh, Your voice literally turned into Megatron as if you were in the Transformers for a little while. Uh, it was intimidating and and scary, uh, but indecipherable. So we'll we'll catch up again, man. Good to see you. Happy New Year to you. Um, I, I think he's right. I mean, look the the people of Mississippi really don't operate on the belief that they're elected folks for two years or three years. Um, they're operating on the belief that when they send somebody to the Capitol, they're supposed to be working the full time. I think there are a lot of issues in Mississippi to be addressed. There are lots of big debates going on right now in the state, whether it's what our tax policy looks like in the future, whether it's not you know, about the future of health care in Mississippi, all sorts of things going on there um, that need to be addressed and that can't really afford to see time taken off. Um, my hope is that we'll see a very active legislative session. And I will tell you, to the legislature's credit over the last several years, they have tackled some big boy issues. They've had to deal with an awful lot between COVID and ARPA and a, a prison crisis and tax policy and teacher pay raises. And so I don't think they've been shy about pushing the envelope. I think the hope is long term that they would continue doing that. Uh, because, candidly, we need more aggressive, bold action in Mississippi if we're going to continue to grow and thrive and strive and make improvements in this state. When we come back, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk to Malcolm Reed about some barbecue. Hope you'll stick around for that. It will be a tasty segment. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert from the Element Well Studio, Russell Tino guest hosting. Be back in just a moment. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines 
and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, Mississippi. Good Thursday morning to you. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting today from the Element Well Studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan in place? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find the balance between income, growth, and guarantees. We've had a great conversation today on the C Spire text line. Let's keep it going. If you want to be a part of it, you can text us at the C Spire text line 601-879-4395. We are joined now by Malcolm Reed. How to barbecue, right? Um, This is something we've been teasing all morning. We've been getting great uh, text comments all morning from people who are getting hungry thinking about it, Malcolm. How you doing, man? I'm doing fantastic, Russ. How's it going? It is going great. Did you have a good Christmas? We did, man. It's, it was it was good and cold up here in North Mississippi. You know, we went through some snow and and froze up a little bit, but now it's back to sixty degrees. So like, you never know. What What were you smoking outside in the snow, Malcolm? And did you have flip flops on, or you put real shoes on? I, I had to put the real shoes on for this one. I couldn't wear the flip flops, but I. Uh, you know, for Christmas, it's all about those prime ribs and, and, and beef tenderloins. That's that's usually what my family requests, so that's what I did. And, uh, you know, we get ready for, for support for the for the new years to get that luck coming in for 23. There you go. Well, well talk to me a little bit about that, because, I mean, I think people would be interested in uh, what you cook and how you cook it on both the tenderloin and the, the prime rib. I'm guessing that's a little bit of a different method that you're using. Yeah, you know, you know, being the barbecue guy, I've, I've got to put it on the smoker. So I like to do a, a good herb crust on the outside of it. I, I get away from the traditional barbecue flavors when I'm cooking for the holiday roast. So, you know, I'll start with a good a good dose of salt, pepper, and garlic. That's whatever, you know, that's a good foundation. And then usually I add some fresh herbs and garlic and, um, you know, things like that, a little rosemary, and, and make a nice little herb crust on the outside. And then I, I like cooking everything just kind of low and slow. I usually run my pits about 250 to get some good smoke flavor um, and to get a bark going on the outside so that crust sets. Um, I don't cook anything past uh, medium rare when I'm cooking for the holidays. That's, I think you ruin a, a prime rib or you ruin a beef tenderloin if you cook it much, much past 125 internal. So that's the whole key to it. What Invest kind of- in a good meat thermometer and, and just you know take your time with it. Yeah, no, I mean, what kind of wood are you using um, to do a prime rib or a tenderloin? Well, I stay away from the hard, hard woods. I I mean, I like using something like uh, a little cherry or a little apple, something like that, maybe some maple, something that's going to give it a mild smoke flavor because, you know, it's not like we're cooking uh, a whole shoulder or a whole hog. We want to stay away from the hard woods. So... So I'm curious. You mentioned that you're doing the even the beef tenderloin low and slow. I, I've always been worried when I'm doing a tenderloin that um, because there's not a lot of fat content that it's going to dry out on me, um, or, or or that I'm going to end up you know too cooked on the inside and not have a crust on the outside doing it low and slow. Do you do any kind of sear on that tenderloin before you put it on or after you put it on? 
Oh, usually I don't on the pit. I mean, I'm running at 250, so it's not like really, really cold smoking. I mean, it's a good, good medium heat um, at 250. And if you want a little bit firmer crust, you can cook it up around 300. But that 250 to 300 range is ideal for it. And it takes about, for a decent size, you know, five to seven pound beef tenderloin, it takes about two and a half hours. So you're going to develop a nice little crust on the outside. But it keeps that temperature even all the way across. You don't get the outside overcooked. Like if you seared it, you're going to get that gray, and then it's going to turn to your medium rare, and it's going to be gray again on the bottom. Well, I like it to be really even across from tip to top, and and cooking at those temps helps with that. Well, that's awesome, man. You know, one of the things that um, that I have figured out is that oftentimes you can get really good deals on beef tenderloins after Christmas. Um, that you know stores that stock up. And they've got they got leftover supply they want to get rid of. Uh, there's some good deals to be had out there on meat. Um, you ever you ever notice that? Absolutely. You know that's I found a lot of them this week right after Christmas. You know, uh, a lot of them. You know, they've had that big rush. They know it's going to be packed in the stores that week leading up to Christmas. But right after, it's a great time to to catch a deal. And what you you know what you can do a lot oftentimes. They're in cryovac packaging, so if you got a deep freeze, man, you can find one on a deal, stick it in there, and, and it'll be good for several months in the freezer. Well, I've got a uh, an 18-pound Packer brisket sitting in my refrigerator right now that uh, we were going to have for Christmas with family, but they didn't come up because of the weather. Um, so I'm I'm planning on sticking on the smoker today or tomorrow uh, when we're done. So so maybe get some tips from you in a bit on that. One of the textures that texted in. Um, Said he got some Japanese A5 uh, Wagyu ribeyes uh, for Christmas, which is a nice gift, um, and wanted to know whether or not you'd cook those indirectly on a Weber kettle, or if you think that's a Man, good that's, idea. That's a fantastic gift. And, you know, with the A5 stuff, it, it has so much uh, fat content in it that, that it doesn't do really well indirect. You really need to get a good sear on it because you want to heat it up enough to where that fat's going to melt but you don't want to dry it out either. So I found with cooking those, they do better hot and fast because you want to, you know, you want to keep them in that medium rare range the same way, but you want, you know, you, you want to get it done fairly quick. So you don't, you know, you know, you don't want to overcook it. That's the, that's the main thing. Well, well talk to me a little bit about, you know, we're obviously entering into the new year. What, what do you have on tap or on, on the grill uh, heading into 2023? So, you know, with us, we've, of course, we've got to do our, our greens and peas for luck, but then we've got to have some pork, too. So I have um, a ham that I that I could save the bones from back in uh, Thanksgiving that I've had in the freezer, so I've got it thawing out so I can so I can use that ham bone and the shank and all that to flavor my vegetables. But for the roast, I'm going to cook a, a big pork loin. Uh, I've got a bone-in pork loin that I'm going to, put on the smoker, season it up. I'm going to do the herb crust on it, something different, you know, to, to kind of give it almost like I would season a prime rib. You kind of stick with those same flavors, but it goes excellent with those New Year's vegetables. And then I've got some hog gel, too, that we're going to cook up. So you got to, you got to have all that to get your health, luck, and wealth for the new year. There you go. And, and on that pork loin, I mean, I think a lot of people came up the way I came up with moms and grandmas that said you're going to get worms and botulism and everything else under the sun if you do anything less than cook that pork loin to shoe leather. That's really not true, is it? No, no. You know, the USDA backed off of that. And I guess it was 
back in the day, you know, before we had a lot of commercial pork and you could just go to the grocery store and get it, but they've backed off on those internal temperatures. Now, I'm not cooking it to where it's just pink all the way through, but if I see a little bit of pink, um, it's okay. The, the, the trick that I found to turn out the best, the best pork loin is to cook it to where it's between uh, 135 and 140. Get it off the pit, you know, right. If you can get it off before it hits 140, you're great, but let it rest. And you want to cover it loosely with foil and just kind of let it hang out on the counter for about 20, 30 minutes. And if, it, if you're going to be serving it a little later than that, you can stick it down in a dry cooler and it'll hold eat in that dry cooler. But you, you let it carry over, and it's going to finish out about 145, 150, which is about the medium range. And it's, it'll be juicy. It may have a slight uh, pink around the edge a little bit, but it's perfectly done. It's been in, the, it's been in that safe zone to kill anything in it. For plenty of time, and you don't have to worry about any of that. Yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't like the idea of pork loin, in part because they're used to having it overcooked. And, you know, people love pulled pork because there's such such fat content in that that you can overcook the heck out of that bad boy. And obviously, overcooking it's what you want to do, low and slow, right? But with a pork loin, if, if you're cooking it to 165 degrees. Uh, or 160 degrees, you're going to eat something that probably is not that much fun to eat. That's right. And, you know, it's really a great value to cook those pork loins as long as you take the time and learn how to cook them right. I mean, it's fantastic, and you can feed a lot of people off of them. Just cook them cook them till they're about medium, and they'll still be juicy. They'll still be tender. You can brine it if you want to add some extra moisture, extra flavor to it. Um, it's really, It's really not a hard piece of meat to learn to cook. Well, well, tell me if this is, is sacrilege, because I would have answered the question to the gentleman who asked about the A5 Wagyu in a way that probably wouldn't have involved a grill. Uh, it probably would have involved a very hot cast iron skillet uh, for a couple minutes sear to get that fat melted, but not to do much else. Do you ever cook a steak inside, or are you only a grill guy? Uh, when I want that crust all the way across the steak, I definitely use the cast iron. Um, you know, and a lot of times, like with Wagyu, I wouldn't do it, but with the regular ribeye, especially a thick cut one, um, I would I would reverse sear it thin, and then finish it off with a little butter, garlic, and rosemary in a skillet, hot hot cast iron as you can get it, and let that crust develop, basting it with that butter as it cooks, and it man it puts a beautiful crust on the outside of it. Now, now you're talking my love language, Malcolm. You got time to stick around for one more segment? Sure. All right, we're talking to Malcolm Reed, how to barbecue right. Uh, the man knows everything about how to make some tasty meat out on your smoker or your grill. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest host, and we'll be back and talk a little bit more about food in this lunch hour. Stay tuned. That keeps Mississippi talking. Now, now, onto the real part. Dynamite! On Super Talk Mississippi. Good Thursday morning, Mississippi. I hope you're doing well as we head into. 
I guess what's not morning anymore, the noon hour, you're eating lunch, we're talking about food, all is good, you're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino guest hosting today from the Element Well Studio, and we're talking to Malcolm Reed. Malcolm, I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm salivating a little bit because the picture in front of me on the television is you holding what appears to be, I don't know, a 50-ounce tomahawk, maybe more. Uh, it's a big old boy uh, you got going on there. Is is that your your steak of choice? You go to the tomahawk ribeye. Well, you know the, the tomahawk on that bone—that's a lot of show. You can't eat that bone, but it sure looks cool when you can serve that to a bunch of people. I mean, they're they're fine steaks, but when it comes down to it, it's just a ribeye steak. So that's—I mean, I do ribeye is probably my go-to steak, but it's like you know, it's like anything. Sometimes you feel like a fillet. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I think a lot of people who are steak people will tell you that the ribeye, or maybe a strip on occasion, some people prefer it, but uh, you know that filet is a dainty little delicate piece of meat that maybe isn't as meaty in taste as uh, something that's got all that good fat running through it. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, that's why the ribeye, the fat's where it's at. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, you invest in something like that piece of meat that you got there in the picture, uh, you know, that's an expensive steak. How do you make sure you don't mess that bad boy up? Well, that's that's another one where your meat thermometer comes in handy. You know, when you when you're cooking a big thick steak, it's easy to to put a probe right into the center of it. And I usually cook them with it the whole time. You know, the big ones you really can't grill them. You can't just go hot and fast on those. You've got to reverse sear them, cook them off to the side, bring them up to temp slow, and then finish them over that high heat or in that cast iron to really get that crust on the outside. But watching the internal temperature, that's the key to it. You know, with 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 a steak like that, you're looking at 125 to about 128. Perfect medium rare, and it's you know it's big enough to where it's going to take it a little time to get there. You can't do it that you can't do that. You know, five to six minutes over charcoal. And, and a steak like that, I'm assuming that when you're done, you want to rest that bad boy pretty good too. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'm I'm all about the rest when it comes to uh, to cooking any meat. I think it's it lets it stop all the heat that's pushed the juices from the steak to the outside edges stops and it soaks it back in slowly, kind of acts like a sponge. So when you cut it after you slice it, the juice isn't on your board. It's still in the meat, and that's, that's what the rest is doing for you. Well, one of the uh, one of the textures on the C Spire text line, which anybody can join at 601-879-4395, uh, wanted me to point out that in addition to being excellent at cooking and uh, helping other people to get better at cooking, uh, that you guys sell some incredible uh, rubs, and I have uh, uh, several in my spice cabinet. Um, that's a big part of what you're doing now, right? Is is helping people flavor things up? Oh yeah, you know we have we have our own line of rubs and seasons and sauces. Um, you know, and and we sell them in a the store in Hernando. We've got a shop, and also online on our website. So, you know, I, I, you never see me pushing my. You know, I don't say you have to use my stuff because there's a ton of great seasonings out there. But, um, you know, I feel like they're really good products. I use them every day. Yeah, I mean, I, I use just your basic barbecue seasoning on ribs all the time. It's it's good stuff. I'm, I mix it sometimes. I think I mentioned this to you last time you were on. I, I'll mix it with your buddy seasoning. Uh, Heath Riles also sells some good stuff. Um, and I like his garlic jalapeno, and I like your barbecue rub. And together they make for a, a nice little bite of rib, a little contrast in flavor. You can't go wrong with that combo. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's good stuff, man. Well, you know, I, I think part of it too. You were talking about reverse sear earlier. 
Um, and it might make sense to back up and, and let folks know. I'm sure plenty of folks have heard of that before, but let them know exactly what it is. Well, so what it is, the reverse here is where you're, you're starting to meet out at a lower temperature, so it's not getting hammered with the heat. It's slowly letting it come up. It's slowly cooking those juices out of it. And you're stopping it short of done so you can hit it with high heat at the end, and that's the reverse part. Normally, you would know, you would just put it on at a high heat and cook it. So this way, we're uh, kind of reverse cooking it. We're cooking it slow, and then we're applying the high heat at the end to get our crust, to get that Maillard reaction, all that flavor, and that, that's from the char, and that's what makes it so good. And it's really an easy way uh, to get a little more flavor into your meat, too, by, by cooking it slow and then high at the end. Well, I, I will tell you that for a long time, I really struggled with cooking a thick steak. And it was because I was stubborn and assumed that, hey, if I'm good at this, I should be able to do it without that sort of low and slow beginning. Um, and once I discovered a reverse sear sticking a steak in the oven even for five or six minutes before I put high heat on it, one, the consistency of the product is tremendous. The ability to control the temperature is tremendous. Um, and you just get you get an even-tempered steak throughout doing it that way. So highly, highly recommend that to folks as they're listening. You, you mentioned the, the Malliard reaction. That's really what turns the meat that nice brown color, right? That's it. That's that chemical reaction that occurs. It gives you that crust, and it, you know, it makes really good flavor on the outside with your seasonings. And, and, you know, part of that, I guess, is uh, there are probably some people listening who have made steak, and it ends up being a gray color. And uh, that's because you're missing out on that, that Malliard reaction where high heat gives you that fun caramel color. That's right. And a lot of times it comes from turning the steak too often. You know, you've got to let it sit over that heat long enough to get that reaction, to get that char, but not long enough to really burn it. So... Well, you know, once once you um, once you kind of master doing that, or you know, you get used to cooking it and watching it, and getting your times down to when you turn it, it develops a much better flavor, and you're going to get that crust, and that's what you want. That's really what that's what the great steakhouses are great at, and it, it's easily done at home. It just takes a little practice. Well, um, I got a question for you. Best way to grill or smoke a deer backstrap? Well. Um, the best way I like—I honestly like to wrap them in bacon. Um, you know, I'll wrap them in bacon. I'll start them out um, about 250 on the smoker, and I'm cooking it till the bacon's done. But I'm watching my internal temperature because deer is a finicky thing. Once you cook it over, that's where it gets that minerally taste that people say they don't like from wild game. But if you'll cook it to where it's medium rare and then let it carry over a little and finish on its own with the heat you built up in it, it'll it'll be just as juicy as say a beef tenderloin. So that's that's the whole thing with it now. You, I have taken them and, and without wrapping them in bacon, just kind of reverse sear them the same way. Um, I'll bring it up to about 115 to 118 internal and then put it over hot coals and just kind of roll it about a minute and a half on each side, kind of think of it as having, having like kind of four sides or four edges just to get that, um, that browning, that Maillard reaction to happen on the outside. And it's fantastic that way too. But wrapping it in bacon adds that extra fat. It gives it some more flavor, and the bacon kind of protects it some so you don't dry it out. Well, let me ask you this. As we head into the new year, um, you know, a lot of folks are going to be thinking about uh, New Year's resolutions and maybe eating a little bit healthier. 
Are, are there things that you think about in that context where putting a, putting it on the smoker uh, is a good route to go if you're trying to think about uh, you know changing your diet? Well, you know, I, I mean, I definitely think meat should be part of a good diet, so I'm, I'm pro meat. But definitely cooking it, you know, especially on your leaner cuts of meat, where you're, if you're worried about you know the the fat content or whatever, you want to keep that down. You want to you want to cook some venison or deer meat. You want to cook. Um, you know, some some different red meat or ch- chicken or anything like that. I think the smoker, the grill is a great option uh, to really give you some, you know, a good way to eat that protein. Do you smoke much fish? Um, man, fish is kind of my nemesis. I love it. I'm getting better at cooking salmon. I'm trying to introduce that to, to my family a couple times a week. But I will say this. I've cooked the best salmon, and it's, people are probably not going to believe me, but in my air fryer. It put, I don't know what it is, but when I try to cook it on the grill, I mess salmon up. But, and I've, you know, I've smoked some and had some pretty good results. But we've been eating it about once a week at my house, and I'm doing it in the air fryer. Really simple. It's like 14 minutes. And it, it for some reason, it puts a really great crust on the outside of that fish. And so that's one of my New Year's resolutions to get better at cooking fish. Well, it's it's one of those things that's finicky that you know I think most people think of as as a sear on the stove, as kind of the way to do it. Um, I, I thought for a second you might mention cooking salmon in your dishwasher, and I'm glad you didn't go there. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like you were about to do a big reveal. It's like I wrap it in banana leaves and put it in the dishwasher. <laughs> no. No, I'm cheating and using that old air fryer, man. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, I'll tell you one thing, and and you know, if you've got a forgiving fish like some tuna or some swordfish or something, smoking that is is pretty tasty, and you can make all sorts of fun dips and whatnot with it. Oh yeah, you know, I, I do love the tuna. I do love that smoked tuna dip. That's one that, that we do. And being from Mississippi, you know, I got to cook. I got to smoke some catfish to make that catfish pate dip. There you go. So I'm I'm, I'm all about it. Well, Mal- uh, but, I, but when it comes to cooking fish, you know, I'm a fried catfish man. There you go. Well, if, if folks want to find you online, is it howtobarbecuewrite.com? That is absolutely it on all the platforms, you know, the website, on social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, even TikTok and YouTube, of course. So, um, you know, if you want to check out some recipes or what I'm up to, you can find me on How to Barbecue Right on all those. Perfect. Y'all, y'all follow Malcolm. He does some great stuff. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting from the Element Well Studio. We'll be back in just a moment. With Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk, Mississippi. I'm not actually going to make people wait until waiting is the hardest part, but it's a good song. Welcome back to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting today from the Element Wealth Studio. If you're thinking about or planning retirement, you should go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find the balance between income, growth, and guarantees. 
Uh, if you want to be a part of the conversation today, many of you have already been a good part of the conversation today, you can join us on the C Spire text line at 601-879-4395. I've appreciated all of our guests today. Uh, Wendy Belly brought some excellent information about some of the changes that are happening at the Department of Mental Health and some of the services that they're now trying to provide to the citizens of Mississippi. It was great to talk to Senator Daniel Sparks, even though we had a little bit of a technical issue at the end where he went full transformer with the voice. Um, but he's got good information and is a guy who takes the time to really understand the issues that he's working on. And then we've been talking with Malcolm Reed. Malcolm had to jump off, but um, if you don't know, you should know Malcolm Reed, particularly if you like good barbecue. Uh, if you're trying to get better at your craft... Go to YouTube, type in Malcolm Reed, type in how to BBQ right, um, and you're going to be able to figure out how to smoke pretty much anything on pretty much anything, because the man's got a great assortment of grills and smokers and uh, tools that he uses uh, to get it right. You can really learn a lot. You can also go to his website. Several people text in that the seasonings that they have are excellent. I use them. They're in my pantry. This is not a paid segment. They're good stuff. Um, so, so worth looking at. Heath Riles is another Mississippi guy who's just doing barbecue really, really well. He's another one to look at. Uh, David in Hattiesburg sent in a picture on the text line, really two pictures, of a plate of short ribs that I'm guessing that he, uh, he smoked up. Great, great bark on those bad boys. Nice, uh, nice smoke ring. Looks like maybe some cherry wood was involved. Um, that's making me hungry. The, really, the last three hours have just made me hungry because we've <laughs> we've routinely doubled back to to food. You know, it's an interesting time of year, uh, Rhino, where we're kind of stuck between Christmas and New Year's. It feels like the whole world slows down. Not much is going on. Not much is is newsworthy. Yeah, the headlines you do see are kind of wild and wacky, or it's a propagated list of. What happened in the last year, or who we lost in the last year, or top resolutions for the new year, this and that and the other. And it seems like every time you get to this time of year, the news is full of lists. Yeah, and I mean, I think part of that is that, you know, people who do the news like to take breaks, too. Uh, They're human, right? Um, And there's a certain malaise that goes on. But the news has been so slow that, uh, that I became part of it this week. Um, because of something that Daniel Sparks alluded to that I'm doing, uh, and I thought I'd, I'd address it since he alluded to it. Um, you know, for those who know me, um, you know, I've been around a while, been involved in Mississippi public policy and politics for a very long time, uh, have been doing super talk work dating back, I guess, to 2008, uh, periodically, either as a guest or as a guest host, and have always enjoyed that. Um, and for the last through two and a half years, I've been running, uh, you know, with a, a partnership with Grant Callen, Empower Mississippi, as the president of Empower Mississippi, and um, super proud of the work that we've done. But I'm I'm leaving Empower at the end of of December, which really is to say at the end of this week, uh, after a good two and a half year run, I've got nothing but but great affection for that organization. Uh, many of you know the work that they do in education, work and justice, the public policy work that they do, the community work that Empower does. You know, in, in the political world, there are show horses and there are workhorses. Um, and I've always leaned towards people and organizations that fit into the workhorse 
uh, camp that do the research, the hard lifting, the listening tours, trying to understand what are the big problems in Mississippi and then to craft solutions based on what they're hearing from people on the ground um, with real research and, and relying on experts. And Empower does all those things. And I've been proud to be a part of that uh, for the last couple of years, you know, and, and to see some big wins, including parole reform, including tax reform last year. Um, really, there are about 13 pieces of legislation that I count that, as an organization, we've worked on hard and and feel like we contributed to their advancement, um, and certainly proud of that. But for a very, very long time, I've also been concerned about the direction of our culture, um, you know, and I think a lot of that has to do with how information is being disseminated across the state. You know, you're listening to talk radio right now, so you're familiar with one way that information gets disseminated, right? It gets disseminated uh, through opinion on, on an outlet like Super Talk. It also gets disseminated historically through, through newspapers. Um, and what we've seen over the last two decades is that newspapers have been failing. And there are all sorts of reasons that newspapers have been failing. Um, some of it's a natural evolution, right? There was a time when people communicated by writing little drawings on caves. There was a time when people communicated through tablets, right? Um, the mode and medium in which people communicate has changed. The biggest thing that's led to, to newspapers uh, shrinking and falling away from what they used to be really is the advent of the Internet, though. And, and in two ways. You know, newspapers' business model for a very, very long time was essentially advertising, right? And what, what has been figured out by a lot of people who are traditional advertisers uh, is that the Internet, you know, presents a way that you can customize advertising. And because of that, traditional newspapers have had a hard time keeping up. You know, Facebook targeted ads, Google's targeted ads, all those things that, that people who are in the space know. The end result of that is a lot less revenue to supply and support the operation of a newspaper, which means that they've seen a staff reduction of about 50% over the last decade or so. Um, and really, the reduction should be even larger than that. Uh, if you look at the revenue reduction, which is closer to 80% in advertising revenue reduction. Well, why am I telling you all this? The, the end result is that what you've got is far less news coverage from qualified, experienced reporters to the extent that you have um, reporting going on. Oftentimes it's younger, less experienced reporters that have been put in those positions. And then generally just you got less people working it. Um, and so there's a lot less good information being put on the table, which means citizens are a lot less informed than they used to be. And, you know, even if you never read a newspaper before, if and that's nobody, right? But even if you weren't regularly reading newspapers, um, the service that a Clarion Ledger used to serve as an example was that it would put out investigative reporting, serious reporting, and then smaller community newspapers would take that and run it in their communities. So that if you were looking at a newspaper in Calhoun, you'd look at it and say, oh, there's a piece from the Clarion Ledger, right? It'd be part of your local news. Um, and then news stations pick that up. You know, WLBT, WJTV, WLOX down on the coast. All those news stations would then pick that up as well. So it served as a dissemination point. And that has largely fallen by the wayside. And in its place, what we've seen is the rise of a new kind of media that is much more ideological. 
much, much more ideological, much more biased in the way that it reports. Um, and some of that has been the advent of, of the way that nonprofit news organizations operate. And so if you look at the changes in the media landscape over the last two decades, what you see is as traditional print journalism has died and this sort of new media has started to rise, that trust in the institution of media has dwindled to almost nothing. Um, you know, less than 20% of people in a Pew poll said that they trust the media to put out accurate information. 64% of Americans believe that the media is biased in favor of the Democrat Party. 22% of Americans believe it's biased in favor of the Republican Party. So that means that you've got even Democrats that believe that the media is operating in a way that ultimately is beneficial to them, that takes their side. Um, and you throw on top of that numbers from actual journalists that are actually even uh, more skewed. A survey was done of about 13,500 journalists two or three years back to figure out what the ideological leanings were. And what they found is that 78% of those that would reply said that they were Democrat or Democrat-leaning or ideologically liberal. Well, so what, you say? Well, the consequence of that is a marketplace that is not balanced, that does not represent all viewpoints, that does not make sure that somebody who is reading the newspaper or listening to a television station that's regurgitating a newspaper actually have information from both sides that allow them to make informed decisions. And so there's a tremendous hole and gap in the marketplace, and it's something that hopefully... I will be working to fix. I'll fill you in more on the back side of the break. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting. Appreciate your time. With Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk Mississippi. Nice little Blues Brothers reference. Welcome back, Mississippi. Hope you're having a great Thursday. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting before the break was talking a little bit about uh, the media imbalance, not only in the U.S., but, uh, but in Mississippi as well. Um, and we see it unfolding on a daily basis. There is a perception that is growing amongst Americans that news no longer serves them, that it no longer brings accurate information to the table. And so uh, what I was relaying before the break is that uh, I'll be leaving Empower Mississippi at the end of this week to start a new media nonprofit called Magnolia Tribune in January. Uh, the goal of that organization will be quite simply to tell the news straight, to give reliable news, good business and cultural coverage, because we think there are a whole ton of things that people want to hear about that are not politics, 
that really serve as the foundation of life. Mississippi has such rich, richness when it comes to food and music and literary history and all of those things that are worth celebrating. And then to the extent that we offer opinion commentary, it's going to be opinion commentary that's rooted in evidence, that's rooted in fact, that's clearly not marked or, or separated in the way that it's marked from news. Because one of the biggest problems in the media landscape today is that they are conflating opinion with news. The separation between those two things has been destroyed, and candidly, we want to bring it back. Um, we want to bring it back in part not only to make sure that the ecosystem is balanced and that people have good information, those are certainly primary drivers, but also because I think missing from the current media landscape in Mississippi and really beyond is any positivity at all, right? It's, it is pervasively negative. If you pick up or go to a site today, you very frequently will only see negative news about things that aren't working right, about politicians that aren't doing their jobs right. And look, one of the key things that a news organization can do is hold leaders accountable. One of the key things that a news organization can do is address challenges that are facing communities. But we are not in a myopic situation where everything is negative. There are positive things happening in Mississippi. There are good things happening in Mississippi being done by good people, and those things deserve to be highlighted as well. You know, I, I think there are people in the state that are making a name for themselves, that are building themselves up on the back of tearing down Mississippi. And that is irresponsible. It is often speculative. It often relies on innuendo as evidence of misdeed. And those things, in my mind, are not journalism. And so I said earlier that I made news in the sense that um, one of the outlets in the state decided to report on the fact that we were launching um, this effort, Magnolia Tribune. And while I'm not going to impute motives to them, a cynic might say it was to try and discredit a potential competitor, an optimist might say it's a sign of relevance, but it did talk about me personally and my leadership personally um, because I am a conservative and I've been involved in a lot of conservative issues and this is evidence of clear bias. Let me, let me be abundantly clear. I am a conservative. I'm not going to hide from that. It would be irresponsible for me to hide from that. I don't plan on doing the news. I'm going to have reporters that do the news. If you hear from me, it will be opinion commentary, and you will know that it is conservative. But there's value in having conservative thought on the field, because right now it largely isn't, apart from outlets like Supertalk Mississippi. And candidly, people are better off, whether they're liberal, conservative, or anything in between, if they hear viewpoints that are different from what they believe. Society is better off when you put steel man versus steel man. You pit iron against iron. You hear the best arguments, and then you get to make decisions. And all we're really saying is the field should have some balance on it. And so it is absolutely true that I'm conservative. I'm not trying to hide from that. The organization will not be. The organization will be focused on telling the news. The other thing that got mentioned was that I had no experience in journalism. Um, and I would just say this. I mean, I've, I've written for the Wall Street Journal, National Review, USA Today, Washington Examiner, Hill, 
those are all fairly prominent publications. I've done a lot of work with Politico, Bloomberg, also prominent organizations. But it is true that I've never run a news organization. I've run nonprofits, eight-figure nonprofits. Um, and my general view is that if you're if you're thinking that it takes someone who's run a news organization to be successful at currently running a news organization, that's disconnected from the fact that less than 20% of Americans believe that news organizations are doing a good job. Maybe we need some fresh insight and some fresh approach. And that's what we're going to try and bring at Magnolia Tribune. Thanks for letting me bend your ear for a second at the end of this segment. Uh, it's been fun to fill in for Gerard Rhino. It's been fun to, to be with you today, man. We had some good conversation. Oh, yeah. Um, you've been listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert, Russell Tino, guest hosting. Gerard will be back, not tomorrow, but at the new year. Hope you have a great new year and a great Thursday. Like the whole wide world is raining down on you. I'm brought to you courtesy of the red, white, and blue. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.